jhana factors. So these are the traditional factors of the jhanas. And let's go through what they are, and then let's do a practice on them, especially the last three. Because to some extent, we've been focusing um, implicitly a fair amount today on the first two. So uh, how many of you by any chance have any familiarity with the so-called jhana factors? Maybe on retreat people talked about them? Okay, great. So I think the way to think about this, myself at least, and I just offer this view to you to see if it makes sense to you, um, is in two ways. One, these are offered to us. These are handed down from people who have been called the Olympic athletes of mental training, who have really found in their own in their own, in their own work, uh, <laughs> what works. The, um, the second thing is to relate to them in terms of what does this actually mean experientially? In other words, to try to operationalize them in terms of, okay, this is what's going on in my mind and therefore perhaps plausibly what's going on in my brain. So the first one is applying attention. So let's use the breath as an example. Uh, When we apply attention to the breath, it's as if at, let's say, the beginning of the inhalation and also the beginning of the exhalation, we say, we apply it. Okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give my attention to the breath. This is where I'm going to plop the spotlight of attention. Sustained attention, the second factor, means I'm going to stay with it for the duration. So I'm applying my attention at the beginning of the breath, at the beginning of the inhalation, let's say, and then sustaining attention for the duration of the inhalation. I'm maintaining contact with the sensations of inhaling for that duration. And then at the end of the inhalation, I'm applying my attention again to the exhalation and then sustaining attention for the duration of the exhalation. These are methods to promote concentration. It's not to make these tantamount to meditation in general or mindfulness in general. It's just that these are skills. These are methods. These are technically um, applicable methods for steadying the mind. The analogy that um, a teacher here, Sally Clough Armstrong, uses for applied and sustained attention, it's, it's close to what Rick said earlier about an ice skater who plants the foot at the beginning of the, of the glide, that's applying attention, and then glides for the duration of the inhalation, and then plants attention, and then glides for the duration of the exhalation, over and over and over again. If you're trying to really tip into staying present with each and every breath for 5, 10, 20, or 30 minutes in a row, it can really help to keep regenerating intention at the beginning of inhalation and exhalation, and then um, really stay with it for the duration. It may, you know, it's like in AA, they talk about one day at a time. Here we talk about one breath at a time. 
you know, or one inhalation at a time. It can seem kind of daunting to be concentrated for 45 minutes straight, but to break it down to one breath, or if you're doing a walking meditation, one step at a time to keep reinvesting and recommitting attention to that. Absorption practices, in a sense, are renunciate practices. For the duration of the breath or the meditation altogether, we give ourselves over to the object of attention and we renounce, we abandon, we let go of, we set beside, behind us, we seclude ourselves from, to use the Buddha's language, everything else. Okay? The beginning of practice and meditation, the beginning of meditation, really is applying and sustaining attention. And it's like a lot of things that if we skip over the fundamentals, we pay the price later. Uh, I studied the clarinet for about six weeks when I was in the sixth grade. And the reason it was six weeks is because I got bored with scales, you know, and I was like, yeah, I wanted to play the cool stuff, you know, like, uh, I don't know what, you know, some song, <laughs> Christmas carols or Ruby Tuesday, or I don't know what, on the clarinet. And, but I got frustrated because I didn't have the basic skills. I didn't have the fundamentals. These are the fundamentals. If you're wondering why your attention is all skittery and, and meditation is not very rewarding for you, look at the fundamentals. My own meditative practice really took off probably 10 years ago related to a teacher I worked with, Christina Feldman, when I did two things. I really focused on concentration and I really focused on positive emotion, which I'm about to get to. So you want to think about that. If you're looking for meditation practice to be more rewarding. What's great about concentration practices, it's you know what you're doing. It's a little bit like working out. You're either you know, lifting the weight or telling a story about it. You know? um, and it's kind of <laughs> like uh, in meditation, right? If you're doing concentration practice, your attention is on the breath or whatever your object is, or it's not. It's like you know what to do. Okay. Now we get to three that are a little bit harder to talk about. They're not so clear. Rapture or bliss is a state people describe it in different ways. And people, in my observation, have there's a range of um, sort of aptitude for rapture. I'm kind of in the middle of the range. Some people drop into bliss like if they're watching a dog food commercial on TV. <laughs> they like... You know, other people have great studies of mind, deep insight, wholeheartedness, massive amounts of love and kindness, and they don't experience much of this physical rapture bliss stuff. So wherever you are in the spectrum is okay. That said, this particular factor, um, which is usually translated as rapture, has to do with an absorption in the object of attention, but it also, in particular, a kind of very pleasurable, very energizing sensations in the body that often have a quality that's rising or and coming in pulses or waves. Right. Uh, Dopamine. Yeah, and, and also probably natural opioids as well as norepinephrine, you know, because it's an alerting, orienting right. thing. Um, it's possible and it's okay to, because you're trying to... Um, tip your mind, and I'll tell you why I think this helps study the mind in a moment, you're trying to tip it into these states, and so it's okay to do uh, things that are a little muscular. You know, the pitfall there, of course, is getting all goal-directed about it and intense, and I gotta have it, I gotta have it. We try not to do that. Remember the middle path, you know, Goldilocks or the, <laughs> the Zen master, the Zen rider of the horse? 
Um, but it's, it's okay to inhale a little more vigorously if you're trying to open up to rapture or bliss. And it's also okay to um, maybe tighten the muscle a little bit very gently at the base of the spine, you know, to try to get that sense of something igniting and rising for you. Okay? And then joy has to do with something that's still very emotionally positive, but not as intense as a rapture or bliss. It's more uh, of a purely emotional state. And actually, some people will experience that after a while, the bliss becomes almost overwhelming. Um, this is you know, not a perfect analogy, but there is some relationship to it. There, there are people who anatomically, uh, for whatever, neurologically, they're having orgasms continuously. And that may sound kind of wild, like, yeah, for the first 20 minutes <laughs> or 20 days. But after that, they're like, please turn it off. You know, it can be too much, you know, too much. And sometimes this rapture of bliss can feel a little bit too much, and you're kind of happy to tip more into the joy. Joy is on a spectrum that we're going to work through in a guided practice in a, in a bit here uh, that moves from happiness to contentment to tranquility. And it's useful to be able to distinguish these four states. What is rapture or bliss? What is happiness? What is contentment? And what is tranquility? So happiness pretty much is an ordinary sense of happiness. Like I think about my kids, that makes me happy. Um, You know, gratitude brings forth feelings of happiness. Whatever, you know, opens a person out into happiness. Contentment is more subtle. It's a state of mind in which there's no wish for this moment to be other than what it is combined with well-being. Okay? It's not as profound as equanimity, but contentment, which I think is a really underrated emotion, especially in American consumerist culture, because it undermines consumerism. And those, the greatest minds of our generation work for advertising agencies, and uh, they don't want us to know about contentment, especially unconditional contentment. But anyway, it's, contentment's really great, and it is the doorway to equanimity. So that's a state of contentment, where you're really okay with how it is, you're fine with how it is, and it feels good. Okay? And then, all, then last is tranquility, a state of great quiet and peacefulness, not inertness or numbness or deadness. Uh, a traditional metaphor is a, is a mountain pool or pond that's perfectly still and quiet. It's very peaceful. Um, it's, it's a lovely peacefulness. Okay. So, and then comes singleness, which we've talked about a bit before, right? Singleness of mind, it's the same thing here, um, where there's a great sense of unification of awareness. Often there's a kind of progressive process where we focus on the breath or whatever the object is. We stabilize attention there. Um, After, you know, in fact, pumping up the battery for 10 minutes or so, uh, we then maybe open more into a quality of bliss or rapture, something that feels physically pleasurable in the body. It's okay at that point to make that the new object of attention. That's the key technical point. It's okay to move from the breath to the bliss mm-hmm. as the new object of awareness because that can help absorb more deeply in it. The Buddha's metaphor uh, or statement about rapture, he said we should be with rapture like someone who, and I'll update it actually, is making bread dough from flour who has the rapture, the milk, 
go throughout this pile of flour. So it infuses every part of the person. So we are to give ourselves over to rapture and bliss at the ultimate, so it fills us completely. Well, that means, in effect, allowing it to become the new object of attention. I hope this is useful to you. This sort of stuff was extremely useful for me. And I'm just transmitting to you, really, the technical instructions that were given to me that I have found very helpful. Um, and then we tip further because, you know, we move kind of past bliss into happiness. You know, this one right here, right? Or joy, rather. We move into joy and then joy, you know, happiness, contentment, and tranquility. And then as uh, infused still with positive well-being, which nonetheless is, may well have been kind of become kind of subtle and yet all pervading. It fills the mind. There's an increasing sense of kathunk, presence, inexperience as one whole thing. Thunk. Here we are in the experience. Which then, and I don't expect it to happen today given the number of people in the room. It might happen for a small number of people here who have a background with this. There can be a kind of tipping into a certain taste of a jhana which really does feel like, wow, I'm no longer in Kansas anymore. You know, it's different. It feels different. If it doesn't feel different, you're not in Kansas. You know. Um, okay. So any questions or come? Oh, I want to say a little bit about the neurology of the rapture and joy factors. It's interesting to me, why in the world would the Buddha uh, pick those out? And why would they be uh, recurring uh, themes. If you think of the, um, I'll go backwards if you bear with me for a second here. Where are we? Okay. I'm going to go to the statements about the jhanas. Here we are. Notice the very first one rapture and joy. Rapture and pleasure. Pleasure is a synonym for joy. It's the same thing. So why would he put that? Why would that be so present? And a quick bit of neurology about attention. If we're trying to steady the mind, and that in a jhana, the mind is really, really steady, okay? And even in the edging into it, we're steadying attention. Well, if you want to steady your attention, that means that you have one object of attention and all other barbarians at the gate, as it were, are kept out. The way the brain does that in the neural substrates of working memory, which are in the upper, outer, frontal portions of the brain, um, is that it uses a dopamine mechanism to do it. And it works like this. When, reward, when dopamine is steady, and dopamine's tracking rewards, including positive emotion, when dopamine is steady, the gate is closed. So we stay focused on whatever it is we're focusing on, because it's rewarding. On the other hand, when dopamine levels drop, pop, the gate opens. And new, potentially rewarding things move in, swarm into awareness. On the other hand, if dopamine spikes, the gate also opens. Imagine a monkey in a tree. You know, in the neurology this was being developed, he was nice bananas in this tree, steady rewards, gate of dopamine is closed because there's no need to look around elsewhere. Let's say the bananas run out in this tree, the rewards drop, the gate opens, and the monkey becomes aware of other opportunities in other trees. On the other hand, let's suppose that the, banana, that the monkey is enjoying his bananas in this tree, right? The gate is closed, and then a really cute-looking other monkey swings onto a nearby branch, right? Opportunity spikes, 
hey, what's your sign or something? <laughs> and, uh, or the monkey equivalent, woo-woo, you know? And, uh, he then gets beamed with a coconut and Duca arises. There he is. <laughs> and round and round it goes, you know? Anyway, so the gate opens. So if we have very high levels, zoop, bear with me. Very high levels of rapture and joy, what do we have? We have steady dopamine at the top of its range. So it's steady, and because it's at the top of its range, you can't get a spike because you're already feeling saturated with reward from a combination of bliss and joy. Which I think is really why uh, we find this emphasis on happiness and joy as awakening factors, uh, sometimes in the form of um, subtler joy like tranquility. But positive emotion, positive well-being is a very important resource for practice. Sometimes Buddhism gets this name as this dour bummer. It's the bummer religion, you know. Um, life is a bummer. Everything in life makes it be a bummer. <laughs> Third noble truth, yeah, a few people who, like, don't make it a bummer, don't longer feel the bummer, but I'm not them. What a bummer. <laughs> and then i got to do eight things every day to not live a bummer. That's really a bummer. Like the Buddhist bummer. <laughs> I never did that before. I mean, <laughs> I'd like you to know you're on tape forever. <laughs> Make sure that's recorded. Oh, no. This goes out on Darwin's next week. No, 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 no. But they say that, but it's really not. It's happy. You know? They look happy. He's happy. Rick Hansen's contribution to Buddhism in the West. <laughs> it's happy. It's good to be happy. There's a place for happiness. We don't want to get attached to it because then the bummer begins, right? But we want to be happy about it. Okay. Keep digging, boy. <laughs> so, let's practice. So, I want to talk a bit about rapture, and then, because we're going to do this in a second. And we're going to be audacious enough to try to kindle some rapture here, as well as some joy. So I'm for that. If it doesn't ignite, it's okay, because this is swinging for the fence this time. What mm -hmm. a bummer, right? And especially the person next to you is going, <coughs> wow, wow. You're like, shut up. You know? Anyway, it's like this is the one of those times when, you know, when someone sits next to you and they're snoring or breathing really heavily. Here it's if they're humming, oh, my God, this is incredible. You know, that's when you want to smack them, but no, we won't do that. Okay. So that's what this is here, and you'll get this in your slide set. Pretty straightforward. Let's see. I want to mention about the practice part. I'm going to mention a couple of things, and then we'll take you through it, okay? So traditionally, uh, there is the instruction that says, when you're kind of ready to, you just open. You say, may rapture arise. The traditional word, who knows if it has some magic power. I like it myself. I use it. Piti is the traditional word in Pali, the language of the earliest surviving uh, written record of the Buddha's teachings, the word for rapture or bliss is piti. May piti arise, or may bliss arise. P-I-T-I, -I, down there. P-I-T-I, -I. yeah. Um, also, as I said, it's okay to kind of gently see if you can kindle it by arousing the body a bit, inhaling a little more intensely, uh, straightening the spine, a little quickening of energy, see if you can you know, get something going. Sometimes it ignites, sometimes it doesn't. And if you give it a whirl, if 
few times, so you open to it for half a minute or a minute and nothing comes, go back to concentrating on the breath and charging the battery more right. and more and more. All right. Then with regard to joy, we'll move to joy from rapture. Um, sometimes people actually just sort of bypass rapture. I think there's a reason why the Buddha put it into so many instructions. So I think it's important to try to access rapture. That said, um, you know, if it's not happening and yet enjoy in its three flavors, you know, happiness, contentment, tranquility is more accessible, fine with that. All right? And there too, there's an invitation. May joy arise. May sukha. Sukha is the traditional word because Pali and Sanskrit have the same roots. Sukha is the root of the word for sucrose or sugar. There's a sweetness to it. Sweet. May the sweetness arise in its three potential flavors. It's really okay when you're, when you're trying to kindle these and get a little lift off to think of what are cues for you for joy, mm-hmm. like gratitude, things that make you feel happy, times you've had, or maybe just a body memory of what it feels like to be, to be happy or contented or tranquil. Okay? And when I do this with you, I'll work you, we'll go through each one of these four states when we get to this point of um, rapture, happiness, uh, contentment, tranquility, and then we'll come back in sequence. Again, the point being, know the state so you can find your way back to it. And because neurons are fired together, wired together, you're building up a, a neural trace so you can more readily activate it at will. Just factually at this point, um, you know, I can actually just, under almost any condition, just drop into a lot of happiness just because I, I have a memory of it, you know, that I can activate it, which is, I think, really helpful. It's hard to be a mean person when you're happy in this wholehearted, wholesome kind of way. Okay, you want to try it? Yeah. All right, let's give it a whirl. So, we're going to be ambitious here. It's okay. The people who have the highest strikeout rate in uh, baseball are the home run kings. So, you know, sometimes you swing for the fences and strike out. If we do, that's, that's okay. Okay, so if you could, we'll just kind of build on the steadiness of mind that's been acquired. Just sit here and say, okay, I'm going to be with my breath, 10 breaths in a row. Applying attention to the beginning of each breath or each inhalation, sustaining attention through, and then reapplying attention at the beginning of each exhalation, um, sustaining it all the way through uh, for the next 10 breaths in a row. And it's okay to count them as you go. If you get to 10 and I haven't said anything, go to 20.
stay with the breath or your object of attention. Devote yourself to the breath and abandon everything else. You could be aware of the breath in the torso as a whole. Or pick some particular point of sensation, like around the upper lip, or a sense of the chest expanding or contracting. Increasingly relax conscious control of breathing, letting the body breathe increasingly on its own. If attention wanders, that's natural, bring it back. Receive the breath, giving over to the breath, becoming increasingly absorbed in it and present with its texture, 
its different sensations, its different qualities present in even a single breath.
may rapture arise. As you like, experiment with quickening the breath a bit or opening to pulses of pleasure in the body, which might be subtle at first. And if they come, see if you can open increasingly to a sense of pleasure or waves of energy and pleasure in the body. Rapture may be subtle, a kind of tingling throughout the body as a whole. Some quality of energy that has pleasure in it. It may be a rapture woven into the breath.
may joy arise. May sukha arise. Allowing rapture to be present if it is. Letting it move more into the background. Opening to, and without strain or effort, gently encouraging happiness to arise. Perhaps the subtle happiness of gratitude. Or a global sense of well-being. Intertwining with the breath and being here, perhaps nourished by deliberately adopting a half smile. May sukha, may joy arise. Thinking of things that make you feel happy. May happiness arise. If it can happen for you, opening to an intensity of sukha, an intensity of happiness, contentment, and tranquility, though for now, primarily opening to happiness. There may be other emotions, there may be physical pain, there might be depression or worry. And amidst those other things, as you can, see if you can find happiness too. Maybe happiness that's the container for those other things, or a thread woven among them. giving attention over to happiness as a concentration practice. May happiness arise.
a contentment arise. Exploring, experimenting with, letting your attention move from happiness to a more subtle and perhaps still more fulfilling sense of contentment. Exploring the experience of being contented, being perfectly fine with things as they are, combined with well-being. Exploring, if you can, feelings of contentment or the mind of contentment spreading throughout your body, your heart and your mind. Making contentment the new object of attention. May contentment arise. Letting go of discontent. Letting go of problem solving or planning. Letting go of any kind of resistance. Opening out into a pervading sense of contentment.
may tranquility arise. Sinking even deeper from contentment into a pervading peacefulness. Opening to a sense of great quiet and calm in the mind. Perhaps using the image of a mountain pond, perfectly still. Opening to the relief, the peace of tranquility. Letting the mind become tranquil and clear.
opening to tranquility. Taking in the experience of tranquility, whatever is present for you, and registering it now. And then moving back up the steps, beginning with opening to contentment, opening your mind again to contentment, refinding that place of being. There's more energy than tranquility. There's a sense of well-being in it, perhaps some happiness. Mostly a sense of things being all right the way they are. You're contented. taking in the experience of contentment, knowing it as an experience, registering it so you can find your way back to it again. Then one step further, as you can, opening to happiness, a more energized and vigorous positive emotion, perhaps thinking of things that make you happy. Maybe helping your happiness with a bit of a smile on your face. Taking in the experience of happiness, knowing what it's like So you can open to happiness in the future.
happiness in your heart. happiness in your face. then seeing if any rapture will arise. Without strain, see if with a quickening inhalation or a little pulsing of the muscles at the base of your torso, your spine, you can feel again some some energy in your body, maybe waves of energy or pleasure. Taking in any sense of rapture or bliss. May pity arise. And then last, recenter attention in a sense of being a whole body breathing. Just sitting or just standing or just lying, a whole body breathing. Infused with whatever rapture or joy may be present, abiding as a whole body breathing.
if you like, staying centered in whatever is beneficial in your state, whatever feels good, experiment with opening your eyes gently and continuing to stay centered in the good places that you are, even with your eyes open, even beginning to gently look around the room. might experiment with moving gently in your chair, seeing what it's like to maintain this quality of steadiness, peaceful well-being while moving a bit. Feel free to stretch, feel free to stand if you like, experimenting with what's it like to sustain a steadiness of mind combined with with positive well-being while standing or stretching or making eye contact with others. If you can stay steady as the sound of the gong moves through the mind. If you can stay happy as you bow. See if you can stay steady and happy as we talk about this for a few minutes. What I'd like to do is is talk about this briefly and then go one last round into the final jhana factor. 
kagata or singleness, unification of awareness. And we'll be done definitely by five, probably a few minutes before five. So anybody have a kind of a methods question, like what to do if or when, or anything you'd like to share about the experience? Please. Yeah. Is there any reason not to hit the rapture button over and over? I, <clears throat> particularly in the beginning when one starts to experience it, I don't think so. I think it's really okay. And I'm, I'm struck by the Buddha's instruction about that. Um, the pitfall with rapture is if it becomes an object of craving, right? And that's true for almost anything. But that said, if it seems healing for someone, and I think there's some people, honestly, especially people who have a, maybe a depressive history or an anxious history uh, or an irritable history or all the above, I don't know. But um, rapture can be really clearing. It really seems to clear the pipes. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? so I want to just give permission for that, right. you know. And then, though, the key point is the Heartwood, it's the Heartwood (coughs) Sutta page, that bliss is not the end. If it facilitates liberating insight, good. If we get stuck there, you know, it's like getting caught up in some road stop on our way to Eden. The other, piece, the other piece on that in terms of hitting the rapture button and another sort of caution, can you go back to the slide on that? If you look at the neurology, uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, those are saturable neurotransmitter systems. They are systems that are capable of habituation. So there is within this, uh, there is within the rapture piece the subtle addiction quality that can accompany dopamine. Um, so there was you know, done, you know, as Rick was suggesting, to, to clear the pipes and clear the mind. And you know, There's enough suffering in the world that it would be nice to have a little joy along the way in our road to release of it. Um, I, think that's, I think that's fine, but there is that piece where it shades over into getting lost. And, you know, None of the jhana states, and the instructions are very explicit within the Dharma, none of the jhana states is to be clung to. The four material jhanas, the four immaterial jhanas, none of it, none of it is to be clung to. None of it is to be what? Clung to. Oh, clung to. As soon as one, as soon as one sees you know, uh, desire arising, one is to be very careful. That said, in, in my experience... Um, and talking with people, very few people become rapture junkies. You know, very few right. people, first of all, have the capacity for it. And there seems to be kind of a natural process, too, where you go into it for a while. And it's like my, my father, when he was young, worked in a peanut brickle factory. And this was peanut brickle. Like for the first, in the first week there, he was under a lot of pressure to eat as much as possible. They wanted him to eat the peanut brickle, peanut butter brickle. 
But after a few days of that, he couldn't stand it anymore. It was too sweet, it was too cloying, and he, he does not like peanut butter brickle something brittle. to this day. Brittle? Brittle. brittle. Yeah, peanut brittle, that one. <laughs> so there seems to be a natural process, too. Okay, a couple more, and then we'll keep going. And they'll all back. You mean while you're meditating, visions? Do they have a positive emotional quality and do they tend to move you in a good direction or not? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, people vary in what happens in the brain, which is not well understood, when we enter kind of non-ordinary states. Some people get sensory phenomena like a sense of pressure. Uh, I had a spiritual (coughs) teacher for quite some time who talked about a sense of, he called it the thumbs, adida, pushing down on him. Um, Other people get visual phenomena. Mm -hmm. Uh, A person came up to me at the break who had an auditory phenomenon. I I think that's just okay, and people vary. I think the crux, occasionally there's some deep meaning, and who knows, there may be subtle levels that Rick and I are not going to talk about that are outside the... Know what's known in Western science, but it could be that what one hears or feels or sees is has a kind of content to it that's meaningful, and that's fine. I think the primary question is the one I raised, which is: is it is it affectively, emotionally positive, and does it help you? Does it kind of propel you forward? And and I I think that's it. Technically, as people really proceed in paths of practice particularly in the Buddhist psychology that came in after the Buddha died, there were uh, trainings that had to do with visualizations around certain imagery, and there are people who are very, very deep teachers of the jhanas who will really use those methods. Um, For our purposes here today, especially as we talk about the jhana factors, we'll stay with the original language of the Buddha, which did not particularly talk about those methods. Okay, a couple more. Yeah, right there in the front, then in the back, in the front. How would you answer her question if she had said, no, it had a negative or or scary quality to it? Differently. Uh, So so the question is, how would you have answered it if it had a scary? But that's what you're really getting at. What would be your answer? Yeah, no. um, Well, first, Sometimes people do talk about it, especially as stages of practice. Sometimes they'll talk about almost horrific imagery that's bubbling up. And then as a psychologist, of course, one wonders how much of that is based on personal history. Well, that is what I'm asking about a client oh. who has a traumatic history. And yeah. we're trying to do mindfulness, but this, it becomes, it has to be very careful because it becomes really frightening. Yeah, I think it's interesting. In the literature of meditation, you'll hear these heroic stories where people had a recurrently horrific image that, and, and I've had experiences like this, I, I won't go into detail, where I, I had a recurring image uh, uh, of, of a devouring mouth. And ultimately the breakthrough for me was to surrender into the devouring mouth. You know, and so there, you'll hear these stories, and for me it was, it was incredibly powerful and useful. And, made me realize things that I had repressed that were surfacing when my mind was more open and so forth. On the other hand, I think for the, it's kind of like history gets written by the winners in that I think there are these stories that are 
they sound really good because they were good, my own included. But what about the people that just get sucked into the vortex of, right. of the horror of it all? Right. And so I think that if, if the container is really strong, that's Jung's metaphor of the crucible, the container. If you're going to work with hot and burning and even acidic material, you need a really, really good crucible, right? That, that's sangha, that's your community, that's your understanding, that's your own mental training, uh, that's a steadiness of mind. You really need to have that. Mm-hmm. And if you have enough of that, then I think there can be a place for processing that material, particularly if what's prominent is not the material itself, but the container of the material. Because neurons that fire together wire together. So if we're lost in the negative material, we're just doing one more lap in hell, you know, right. deepening the groove each time we go around the track. But if what's prominent is spacious awareness, a sense of our allies, I think that's where Tibetan practices can really come in, a sense of those who love us being with us, including our pets. Uh, I have an awesome cat. <laughs> he has us. But anyway, um, that's good. Great. But the thing I would just finish on, and then we got to keep going. Um, but, to say. Yeah, um, it's a uh, beware of the dark side of the force. The brain's very vulnerable to negative material. Biologically, mm-hmm. we evolved to be very vulnerable to the negative because that's what we had to pay attention to sur- to survive. And personally, um, I think the pits are overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The um, I, th- I think the the real import in, in Rick's answer on both sides is that what is the consequence of that image to that individual? If the consequence of that image as a positive one is to facilitate the path of practice or to facilitate the healthy recovery from trauma, then that is an image to be fostered and 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 held. If it is a blocking image or something that keeps one from moving forward, and it's only something that you can actually do by sitting with the client and, and coming to a realization, then there's another piece in here. There's really solid work in memory showing that memory is an active reconstruction. It's not just a passive recollection. It's, it's, you don't push the, uh, the download key and have some automatic download of, of data from your, your hardcore drive. What the brain does is it puts out certain signposts for what that memory was the last time it stored it, and then it paints it in, and it paints in all the other data based on what its expectations are for the story. So rec- the recollection of the past trauma or the vision which is blocking the recollection or the working through of that trauma has within it... Um, you know, the if it is held, brought it to with the uh, therapist or the friends or the spiritual community, is able to create the correct sangha, the correct the correct uh, container. Then, when that memory is laid back down, pieces of that encounter with the therapist or the or the ther- or the uh, or the sangha or the spiritual teachers or the visualizations go with it. And so the new memory trace contains within it the experience in which it was just recalled. Uh, And that's a very active process. And the next time it comes up, it doesn't mean that the traumatic experience didn't happen. It's not that the event did not occur. How that event is held in that person's life changes subtly. And repeat that 
moment by moment by moment by moment, encounter by encounter and by encounter, and the horrific rape, mur murder, and pillage of the Tibetan village becomes the spiritual enlightening statement of His Holiness, my friend, the enemy, the Chinese. That requires tremendous work. But if you understand that, for those of you who are therapists or are involved in, in, in caring communities, that is an underpinning of how therapy works. <coughs> By taking, taking the memories of the past and reconstructing them in such a way as they no longer impede the progress of the individual into the future. Oh, one last one in the back, right there. Great. Uh, brainwaves with EEG and EEG spectral analysis and stuff like that um, has not had the, some of the subtleties of analysis uh, as the functional MRI data. Perhaps we're, you know, some of what we're doing, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a boarded EEGer, you know, so I've done epilepsy and EEG work for 30 plus years. And the spectral analysis and its contribution to, uh, to our understanding of these states is very important. But in terms of being able to go down into and dig at anatomy that's way deep in the brain and be able to say that this anatomy uh, changes when you induce that state, the surface EEG, which is four to five centimeters away, attempting to detect microvolt activity in a voltage environment, a 120-volt environment, and you're trying to detect microvolt activity at 4 centimeters, it can't, it, the technology is not up to the job of, of imaging what it is we wish, we wish to analyze. So the, uh, that being said, there's some powerful stuff that's being done with, I talked a little bit about the, uh, the coherence, discoherence in terms of the mind moment thing that I stated earlier today. That's based on EEG analysis of, of gamma wave frequencies in the, in the brain. And so we do know that certain of those things happen, but that's all on the outside. It doesn't tell us a lot about what's happening in the depth. And it's just, that's a limitation of our ability. I mean, nobody is going to be putting you know, arrays of several thousand depth electrodes into a human brain and trying to record this activity under particular states is just, you know, that, that, that just won't happen. That would be the one way that we would begin to get some of that data. And some of the, some of the analysis we have on EEG frequencies and some of this does come from depth electrode analysis in patients with partial complex epilepsy who, where we are evaluating them to do a temporal lobe resection and they have depth electrodes in there. But that's one, that's not a normal state, that's not a meditative state, and it's a brain that has had significant injury and is under the influence of great drugs. So that's a long answer, but that's why we aren't really discussing it today. How about super last, and then I'm going to make a couple quick announcements, and we're going to go back to practice. So, yeah. Uh, 
And one of your statements is I talked about liberating insight. Yeah. I sort of fits with that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so the question is liberating insight. Um, there are two kinds, as it were. Uh, we get kind of small insights along the way that liberate us, bits and pieces. Uh, you know, we realize, for example, that uh, in my case, I had a liberating insight in my uh, mid 20s where I realized that growing up, um, I had been a nerd, not a wimp. That was liberating, actually, <laughs> for a guy especially. Um, Particularly as technology came along and nerds began to rule. <laughs> so there, there are many kinds, and we, we see things more exactly. And then there are insights that you get in practice where, for example, increasingly you see how things just disappear. You know, things change continually. Or you see how <coughs> reacting to something that's pleasant by getting caught up in it and really wanting it, or reacting to something that's unpleasant and getting caught up in it and really wanting it to end. You know, you see how that leads to suffering. So those are, I, I think of those as sort of a class of insights, you know, that are, that are really important and they accumulate. You know, there's um, a lovely Tibetan saying called sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening. So we have these insights and then we, we cultivate them. We, we really try to help them stick to our ribs, and then bring them out into our life. And then there are the ultimate insights, you know, that uh, in Buddhism, and um, you can see for yourself if that's a path, of course, that's meaningful to you, but in Buddhism where the, the Buddha's ultimate insights were fun, had to do with, for example, the lack of their truly being an, abide, an abiding self. Or the profound insight into <clears throat> the complete futility in clinging to anything. You know, uh, these kind of ultimate insights that basically permanently eradicate greed, hatred, and delusion from ever, and the, the presumption of self ever arising in the mind, which is kind of the operational definition in Buddhism of the fourth stage of awakening, the arahant. All right, that's the ultimate. The, I think the relevance of this for steadiness, um, I suspect many of you felt it. I felt it guiding you in the practice and kind of tasting it. Um, where you get to a place where you start realizing that so much of what your mind does that makes you suffer is unnecessary. And I mean, I'm including me in the you, you know. It's just not necessary. It's not binding. You know, it doesn't need to happen. And um, as that happens increasingly, you just kind of bit by bit, step by step with breakthroughs on the way, just kind of ground yourself increasingly in a, in a mind that's not generating much suffering. There's subtleties that remain, but this side of full enlightenment, but it's just not doing that stuff so much. My wife said something to me the other, recently, a day or so ago, that... Um, I'm happy to report, did not piss me off as much as it used to <laughs> over the years ago. In fact, very subtly, and I mostly had a lot of space around it, you know, and sort of the non-necessity of getting my mental knickers in a twist over that one. <laughs> you know, smart. yeah. So, okay. So let's, 
let's how about we practice one last time a couple quick announcements uh, we'll we'll end on the three gongs um, which will occur before five uh, let me say for myself I Rick may have his own addition uh, just what a pleasure it has been it's so intimate somehow with complete rel most of you are unknown to us personally just so so nice so thank you for listening to us um, if you uh, just details uh, on your way out of here, drive safely, maybe walk around a bit before you drive. Uh, if you want to offer a material donation on the way out the door, that's very welcome. If you want to sign up for anything, <laughs> remember to do that. Mm -hmm. And look around your seat before you go. Uh, there might be some goodies around your seat. And we will be clearing the chairs in the room at the end today and stacking them. And if you want to help doing that, that would be very welcome. Okay, so let's conclude with a practice, all right? Actually, I, I want to say this. Rick is uh, my dear teaching buddy and dear friend for a long time. We started doing this over four years ago right. at Spirit Rock. and um, Nove always... November of 2006. That's right. And it's been uh, just really great, as always, to do this. Thank you for letting us take you, in, take you all into a voyage to a, the very deep end of a very deep pool. Um, it's been great. Okay, so let's finish with an opening to singleness of mind. And just to remind you of that, um, you're opening into all of experience presenting itself in awareness in a, as a unified gestalt, as one whole thing. In other words, rather than attention skittering from aspect to aspect of experience, it's like all there at once. As we go into this, it's really fine to invite singleness or unification to arise, like mea kagada, which is the Pali word for it, arise, may singleness arise. And there may be a kind of a sinking into it. So I'm going to do the preliminary part fairly briskly just because we've gone through this before. And then let's really explore a sense of presencing in a unified, um, surrendered way. So bringing attention to the sensations of breathing. And as you can, opening to and getting a sense of the body as a whole as you breathe.
kind of wide-angle lens of awareness in which all of the body is present. In effect, the object of awareness is the body as a whole, one gestalt, one whole thing. And then grounding increasingly in the body as a whole, also allowing the emotional memory of rapture, happiness, contentment, or tranquility to become increasingly surfaced in awareness. Abiding as the whole body, breathing. Having the emotional tone of this moving from happiness to contentment. Contentment characterizing your mind more and more.
contentment being part of the whole. So that all of experience, both body sensations and contentment, appear at once, simultaneously, as a unified gestalt in awareness. Contentment, settling down into tranquility. Tranquility, peacefulness, increasingly being the emotion appearing in the mind along with the sensations of being a body breathing. Tranquility, breathing, body has one whole thing. an increasingly impersonal sense of abiding as a peaceful body breathing. It's not about me, not trying to own anything or direct anything. a growing absorption in being a peaceful body breathing.
grounded in the peacefulness of being a body breathing, opening to whatever else may be moving through the mind, thoughts or sounds, increasingly experienced in a unified way as a, as a singleness of mind. stable presence, not preferring anything one way or another arising in awareness. Collectedness, presence, May singleness arise. Surrendered to the breath, may a kagata, may singleness arise.
staying centered in singleness as it is present for you. If you like, experiment with letting your eyes open gently, including visual sights in the totality of the single experience you're having. as it is meaningful to you, you could also open to a sense of some of the qualities of your own goodness, your own kindness, your own sweetness, your own sincerity, your own effort. the presence of practice, the presence of caring, present here too. As Joseph Goldstein said to me a while ago, when I told him some breakthrough I'd had, he he nodded supportively, and then he said two words, I offer them to you, keep going. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.